But I'm excited today uh, to continue our series through the crowd. So go ahead and grab out your Bibles if you put them away already for whatever reason. If you don't have them, we'll have everything up on the screen as well. Pull out something to take some notes. I like to joke that I like to take notes and I'll convince all of you eventually to take some notes. All right. If you like fill in the blank, we have the church app. You can pull up the Victory Church app. Jot some things down. It's important to jot things down as God speaks to you. Something jumps out of a verse or in a worship service or in your own devotion. I would encourage you to write some things down, not just so you can have them written and you can kind of catalog them at home, but as you take a spiritual journey that you can reference those things later on, that when you're going through maybe a dark place of life, you reference what God spoke to you while you were still on the shore. Come on, you you reference those things that God speaks to you. And so it's important for us to write some things, jot some things. I love to take notes in the, just in the margins of my Bible where God would speak something about a verse or a particular, not anything grand or great, just something he spoke to me. I like to put those things down when I come back through reading that I see what God has spoken, that I've seen that he's been faithful. And so I would encourage you guys just to take some notes and one day I will convince you to do so. Maybe not today, but one of these days, important to jot some things down. We're talking in this series through the crowd about a particular aspect of Jesus's ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, kind of lays that out. It says that large crowds followed Jesus wherever he went. And so this was just kind of a normal, uh, normal day-to-day thing for Jesus, that everywhere he went, that crowds would follow him. Crowds were just the, the day-to-day normalcy for him. And so what I would like you to see is as Jesus walks and the crowds surround him, because he was seeing people healed, he was seeing people set free from demon oppression, he was seeing amazing things happen in people's lives. And so the crowds loved to be around him. He was full of life, he was charismatic, and all these things that Jesus showed that people just love to be close to him. People love to get close to Jesus. And the thought I have for you is as people began to flock to Jesus, as the crowds surrounded him, even in the midst of it, he never lost sight of the individual. And the Gospels, all four of them, lay this out perfectly, that even in the midst of the crowds, even in the midst of all of this, that Jesus still saw and cared about the individual. I want you to see this then in chapter 9, verse 36. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I love this verse, that he didn't see the crowds and see an instant way to popularity. He didn't see the crowds and see an instant way to financial success. He didn't see the crowds and think, I need to capitalize on my social media influence. This is my chance, right? He didn't see the crowds. What it says is he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We see even in the midst of the crowds, Jesus saw them. And that word saw there, it means to perceive, it means to perceive. It means to understand. He didn't just see on this, this kind of like glossing over this, this grand just mob of humanity. It says he perceived. He saw that they were harassed and helpless. He saw not just their identities. He saw their problems. He saw their issues. He saw what they were struggling with. He saw what they were going through. And I love that the Bible doesn't say he saw what they were going through and he was frustrated because of the crowds. Or he was, he was frustrated because of their condition. No, it says he had compassion on them. And so here's the bedrock of the series. You can jot it down if you're taking notes. The first thing I want you to know is that Jesus sees you. He sees you. And I think too oftentimes in our lives, we, in the billions of people on the planet or hundreds of people that we go to work with or we go to church with, oftentimes we feel lost in the shuffle. We feel like, well, I know that God, maybe he saw me at one point in my life, but now he's got so much to worry about. There's no way he sees me. And I want you to know nothing could be further from the truth that God sees you today. And better than that, God knows you. You can write this in the first person if you're taking notes, by the way. I want you to internalize this. 
that Jesus sees me, that Jesus knows me. And I want you to understand Jesus knows you with all of your problems, all of your mistakes, all your shortcomings, all the things you try to hide, all of those things. Jesus knows you. And more than that, better than that, Jesus has compassion. He cares about you. I think sometimes we're okay with the first two. He does see me, and I'm pretty sure he knows me, all of my faults. But we struggle with the third one, that he cares about me. And sometime over these next few weeks, maybe today, maybe in these next few, maybe you need some time. I want you to begin to internalize those. That Jesus sees me, that Jesus knows me, that he cares about me, that he knows my failures. He knows the weight that I'm carrying. He knows all of these things that I'm struggling with, and he still has compassion. He's not frustrated because I've got myself stuck. He's not frustrated. He's not angry because of the crowd. It says that he saw their problems. He knows us, and he loves us. So that's the bedrock of this series as we're going through that, that he cares about you. Because it's opposite to what religion would tell us. Honestly, religion would tell us God's mad at you, that God wants to get even with you, that all he's doing is waiting to punish you. But this verse tells us something different. That he saw the shortcomings, he saw them harassed, he had compassion, he wanted to do something about it. And for each one of us throughout this series, whichever week speaks to you, I want you to understand that that God sees your condition and that he wants to rescue you. That he wants to. It's not a have to, it's not a well, I, I might as well, it's not a well, I'll just leave them where they are. He wants to have compassion on you. And my prayer for you is that you would internalize that, that even as Jesus walked through crowds, even as he saw the mass of humanity, he still saw the individual. He still loves and he cares about you. Today, we're going to look at a story in Luke chapter six about a guy who went through some trauma in life, a guy who went through some things. And then the Lord identified him, pulled him out of the crowd and changed his life forever. I want to look at it. It says on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they hate Jesus. They're always looking for something to accuse him of. And so in that day, part of the law was that you could not do any work on the Sabbath. You understand that? It was, you could not do any kind of work. And they had, so, they had so misused this law. They were at the point that even healing somebody, they would count as work. Even, even bringing restoration to somebody, they would count it. So they're watching this man and they're watching Jesus to see what he's going to do. And so, of course, it says, watch this, to consider if he's healing. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. I just want to take a time out there and just say that some of you think it would be really cool. Some of you are like, it'd be awesome to live around Jesus in the flesh. But I think a whole lot of you would be in more trouble than we like to think. All right, everybody? Because he could read their thoughts. Some of you would be in trouble if your spouse could read your thoughts, much less Jesus. But that's in a sermon for another day. All right. So then the Lord identifies him. Watch this. He said to the man, he knew what the Pharisees were thinking. And he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. And so he got up and he stood there. And then Jesus said to them, I ask you, what is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life, or to destroy it. And he looked around at them all. One translation said he was grieved in his spirit. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was completely restored. I love that promise, how the story resolves that the man was completely restored. Because just like blind Bartimaeus last Sunday, this is a man who finds himself in a position, he finds himself somewhere where he has an issue or a problem that he cannot deal with or take care of on his own. He's not able to do it without a touch from heaven. And I want to point out to you here at the beginning that it's an incredible thing that Jesus heals this man physically. Jesus did all of these works while he was on the earth physically. 
But Jesus himself said, which is greater, the work to create, to heal, or the work to forgive sins? And I want you to understand, as we go through this story, it's incredible, this miracle. But there's one thing that all the people that Jesus healed in the natural, one thing they all have in common, they all still died. All right, everybody? They're all still dead today. There's one thing they all have in common. But what Jesus promises to us, what he does in a miraculous, I love physical healing. I am all for it. I believe in that, that the Holy Spirit can move and that God can still touch today. But greater than that is what Jesus came on this earth to do, and that is to forgive sins and eternal life. That's the greater miracle in this story. I want you to begin to see this today as we walk through this story. Because what Jesus promises to us, death cannot take away. What Jesus promises to us, death cannot touch. Physical ailment cannot touch. It does not even come close to what he promises. As we look at this story of this incredible thing Jesus did, I want you to understand that the greater miracle by far is the forgiveness of sins. That he shed his blood on Calvary that we might be saved. That we could have eternal life. That is the good news. And so we're going to walk through this as Jesus does this incredible miracle. And I love how it ends with this, that he was completely restored. Wasn't 50%, wasn't 80%, wasn't Jesus, well, I got you close. You got to go past the finish. Completely restored. That's the promise I want to look at today. And I wonder how many of us have been carrying things. I wonder how many of us have been carrying emotional or mental trauma or, or baggage that we've had from maybe when you were young. I wonder how many of us have experienced something like this guy did. Where the only way that we can be set free from it is a touch from heaven. The only way that we're going to be set free, nothing we can do under our own power. The only way is a touch from God. I wonder how many of us have carried those things in with us today. And for some of us, we've lost sight of even hoping that God could set us free from it. And we just kind of drag that bag around with us on that chain. Just forgetting that God is a miracle working God. That we can be set free. And so something has taken place in this guy's life. A few different things on this path to restoration I want us to see. Number one, jot it down if you're taking notes. The first thing that happens, if we're on this path to restoration, the first thing that happened, and it may have happened early in your life, is the devil attacks. First thing that steals something from us is the devil attacks. The enemy comes in to attack our lives. And to get us in this place where we think we'll never be free from it. If we go back to verse 6 of our test, it says, The right man was there whose right hand was shriveled at the end of verse 6. And the word used there literally means to dry up or to lose function. This is a man that theologians believe at some point in his life, whether as a young man or, early or later on in his life, had some accident or some tragedy that happened to him. And the word there, it either means for the nerves to dry up or to die or for it to be a continuous process. Something happened to him. Some tragic accident, some trauma that happened in his life, and it continued to dry up until finally he lost control of that hand, control of that thing. And so our lives, I believe it happens to a lot of us. Something happens to us, whether it was a mental or emotional relationship, maybe something in the physical, but something happened. Something, some trauma, something happened to us to damage us in our perspective or in our security or in our emotions or in our relationship. Something, some tragic thing. And it continued to grow. We continued to let it fester. We continued to not be set free from it until eventually it grew into this monster that we carried around with us thinking we'll never be free. Something in the midst of us and over time, this deterioration that took place and we need God to touch. And in fact, John 10 says the thief comes only to steal, to kill and to destroy. It says that's his only only aim on this earth. The only thing he wants to do to us. And too often times we'll buy into the promise that he's here to do something else. We'll see something that looks nice or sounds nice, something that maybe works its way into our family or into our lives. And we'll buy into the lie thinking it would mean something different than what he's been doing for thousands of years. And I promise you it's a lie. 
The devil's only aim is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So there's areas of your life that the devil is working on right now to steal from you. To steal your joy, to steal your morality, to steal your relationships, to steal your family. There is somewhere right now the devil is working overtime trying to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now most thieves who are good at what they do... They don't like smash and grab, all right? They don't like just just kind of smash the window, grab the item, and run away. Because everybody could just say, yeah, that was the person who did it. That was, I saw them. That, that, it's right there. It was the devil. He's the one that did it. And so when the devil comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, oftentimes it's not in this broad, open way where you're able to say, well, yeah, that was the devil. Now, sometimes it happens that way, something so horrific or something so tragic that you say, yeah, I knew that the devil was working there. I thought that's what he was trying to do in that situation. But most of the time, for most of us, it's a gradual deterioration that happens where you're not even aware that it's being stolen from you. Not even aware that maybe something is being taken from you. And it's a gradual thing, minute after minute, day after day, until years later you wake up and say, I've lost all of my joy. I've lost that relationship. I'm not even sure how I got this far from God, but step by step, it was being stolen from you. And so if that's you today, first thing you would have to say on this place to complete restoration, first thing on this path and the spiritual journey is to recognize that you are under attack. Because I think there are two kind of mindsets in the body of Christ, and both of them are harmful. I think one is seeing a devil under every rock. Like, I ran out of gas yesterday. It must have been the devil. Come on, somebody. That wasn't the devil. You just need to fill up your tank with gas, all right? But then the other flip side of that is not seeing him anywhere. Not seeing him in any attack. And so oftentimes we'll attribute to coincidence or to other people attacks of the enemy. When the first step towards restoration is recognizing that you are under attack. That he would like nothing more than to steal your family from you. Nothing more than to wreck your marriage. Nothing more than to ruin your relationships. Nothing more than to see you go down in a ball of flame. There's nothing you would like more than to steal that from you. And you have to recognize that we as the body of Christ are under attack. First step in that is recognizing that one day, I told you, one day you wake up and realize that you are so far away from where you used to be. And you're thinking, how did I ever get there? You didn't recognize when you were under attack, when the devil was trying to steal something from you. It's like several years ago in my senior year of college. I roomed with some good friends of mine, which is probably a mistake. Anybody knows rooming with a good friend is usually a mistake. Unless they're your spouse, everybody, all right? That's just right there. But if you've ever lived with other people, anybody ever lived in an apartment with a bunch of other people? Let's just see right now. Apartment, all right? Not a house, not a thing. Anybody live? There are some immutable laws of the relationship when you live with other people. Some of them are fungible depending on personalities, right? And perspectives of the people you live with. But there is one law that does not change when you live with other people that are not your parents, all right, everybody? You do not eat food that you do not buy. All right. Anybody who's ever lived with anybody else understands that is the unchangeable law. You do not eat food that you do not buy. You do not drink Cokes that you do not buy. I don't care if you got munchies at 2 a.m. You do not eat my food. All right, everybody. And that one goes out to you, Austin. All right. That just right there. I've settled some things from college in my heart. All right. And for the most part, we were pretty decent about it. Now, one week, one of my roommates decided he was going to buy some pricey cheese, all right? I don't know why that entered into his head. I don't know if you've ever priced gourmet high-end cheese. But in our college fridge, with all of our no-name meat and, you know, frozen dinners, it stuck out like a sore thumb, this pile of very expensive cheese. And so we began to give him a hard time, like most of you would. And ask him why he needed such expensive cheese, why he needed to eat that. We were like the disciples, right? This could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Like it could have, like that was, that was our mindset from then. 
And he would respond that y'all are just jealous and don't touch my food. All right. That was his usual response. But luck would have it that same week on that Friday night, we held a informal party, if you want to call it that, in our apartment where we invited over a various odd assortment of people. Really, the reason all those particular people were there is a whole story to itself. And I won't tell that one today because it makes me look bad. All right, everybody. But <laughs> come on, we got to be honest in this church today. But we had this party on that Friday night and some people came over. And so we all pitched in and got some community food. Everybody knows what community food is. We put that out for everybody to eat. And so everything was going great. We had everything out until one hour about into the party, a guy named Ed, we'll call him Ed because that was his name, poked his head into the fridge looking for a Coke. And I distinctly remember, you know how you have memories like this. I remember hearing Ed go, ooh, cheese. (laughs) And then you heard Will shout from across the kitchen, don't you touch my cheese. And so Ed got his Coke and went back to the party. On the way, though, he told Joseph, which is also his name, about the cheese that he had found in the fridge. And so all throughout the night, I kept watch because you would see Joseph or Ed at some point in the night kind of sidle their way into the kitchen and then come back looking guilty as sin. Come on, somebody. Over and over and over. And I thought it was hilarious because it wasn't my cheese. Come on. I was in college at that point. Until everybody went home for the night and we opened the fridge to find all of the cheese gone. Every last shred of cheese, gone. And of course, the rest of us laughed and Will went to bed hungry and it was a great night for all of us. But here's the point. Here's the, I never tell a long story. So here's the point, everybody. Some of y'all have a devil creeping around your house, stealing your cheese. Put that on a bumper sticker and ride it out of here today. All right. Some of you got a devil creeping around your house, stealing your cheese, and you have no idea that it's happening. Some of you are so far down the road that little by little, he's stolen from you. That you wake up years later and all of your joy is gone. All your relationships are wrecked. You're a million miles away from God that you profess to love. Some of you have a devil stealing your cheese and you don't even know that you're under attack. And so if I could somehow make that real to you today, that we have to understand as the body of Christ, we are under attack and heading our heads in the sand, hiding ourselves away and pretending like it's not happening helps no one. Recognizing that the enemy is attacking. There's a little area of your life that maybe got sideways. Or maybe a little area of your life that you used to be good in your devotions or used to be great in your worship or something that got a little bit sideways. And you didn't even know that it was happening. And now you found yourself years later far away from the life God has called you to have. So I want you to evaluate your life this morning. Ask yourself, what in my life is under attack? What in my life is shriveled or dry? What in my life is under attack from the enemy? What area of my life needs God to touch it? And we all have one. And it takes us identifying it if we're going to be on this path to restoration. Let me just say, oftentimes, if I can just give a little bit of pastoral advice, oftentimes, it's usually in an area of our greatest passions or our greatest strengths. Because let me tell you this, the enemy would love to turn your greatest passions into your greatest weaknesses. He'd love to take that place that you are most passionate about, that thing that you are most gifted in, and turn it or twist it. That thing God gave you for the kingdom of God and twist it into an area of weakness. You see this in some of the church, some of these leaders of the faith that fell for this all the time. Like Moses, he delivered the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. He was the deliverer, but before that ever happened, the deliverer became a murderer. They had this great passion to deliver the children of Israel, but in a fit of rage, in a moment of anger, he took it out on the Egyptian and murdered him and delayed possibly by decades the calling God had on his life. Till the burning bush spoke to him and set him back on the path that God had for him. 
You talk about David, one of the greatest worshipers to ever live. Wrote most of the book of Psalms, but before that happened, the greatest worshiper became an adulterer. That the Bible says that when the kings, when it was time for the kings to go to war, David didn't go. David didn't do his job. And so then he was at the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong moment. And he committed the sin of adultery, had that stain his legacy. Bible tells us that not only that, not only did he sleep with that woman, but then he also had her husband killed. The greatest thing, this pain. And so David had restoration, but I want you to see how they gave in. The greatest passion became the greatest weakness. The devil would love to twist that in your life. Then you talk about Paul in the New Testament. Paul, we know him as Saul, greatest defender of what he thought to be the true faith. Defending righteously and zealously what he thought to be the faith, but he became the persecutor of the church. The early church that Paul began to murder, tear families apart, murder the early Christians, almost derailed the modern church movement until God knocked him off his horse and converted him to Christianity. The devil would love for your passions to become your weaknesses. He would love to turn what you have passionate about the things God has gifted you with and use them to make you run as far from God as you ran to him. He'd love to twist those. And so when you ask yourself this question, what in my life is under attack? What in my life is the devil trying to steal from me? To pervert in my life. So this man is in a place the devil would love to keep all of us. He's in this place that he's been stolen from him. The last part of John 10, though, gives us the good news. The last part of John 10, he says, The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they may have life. He said, The thief comes to destroy, but I've come that you may have life. And not only life, have it to the full. One translation says, Have life to the overflow. Have life until you can't even contain it inside. Listen, Jesus didn't come so you could just stay alive, everybody. You understand that, right? Jesus didn't come so you could just hang on until he comes back again. He didn't come so you just back. Well, I'm just, I'm making it. Praise the Lord. I'm just, praise the Lord. One day I'll fly away, but I'm just in the here and by and now. I'm just making it, everybody. That's not why he came. Jesus came that you would have life and have it to the overflow. You'd have life to the fullest. You'd have so much inside of you what he's given you. You can't even contain it. You would have to share it with others. That is the good news of the gospel. And I'm preaching better than you are responding today, everybody. But that's okay, all right? He gave his life. He gave his life for us that we could have life and have it to the full. That we can have the abundance of life. He said, I came that you could have life to the full. The overflow, that's God's plan for your life. We go back to our story in verse 7. He says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they didn't like him, of course, right? They didn't enjoy Jesus' ministry. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. And so he got up and he stood there. Now I'm reading behind the lines a little bit here, all right? I'm going to read between the lines. I'm kind of taking a little liberty with this particular verse. But this is a trait that I see in people in the church all of the time. And that is, I want you to notice that this man was not already front and center that day. He wasn't already standing up in front, dancing before everybody, worshiping God. He wasn't front and center at church that day. No, he probably slipped in in the back, probably thought, I hope nobody sees me. I hope nobody kind of knows this thing. I'm just kind of here to do what I want to do. But I want you to notice this. That this man kind of, kind of off to the side because Jesus has to bring him out to the front. And so often in our own lives when we have been attacked, so often in our own lives when we have been hurt, when we have a wound that we carry, the number one thing, jot it down if you're taking notes, is we withdraw. We do the thing that possibly hurts us the most in that moment, and that is when we have a hurt, when we have a wound, we withdraw from other people. We withdraw from the church. We try to keep out of sight of anybody else. 
Because I would submit to you this man that day, the devil attacks us, he wounds us, he begins this withering process in our lives, and our reaction typically is to run. Our reaction typically when we've done something is to run and to hide, to withdraw from relationships. It's a trait that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember when they sin, what's the first thing that they do? They run and they hide. First thing that they do, they run and they hide from the presence of God. First thing, oftentimes, and wrongly that we do, is when we feel like we've messed up, we feel like we've done something wrong, is we run from the God who can forgive us. We run from the God who can heal us. We withdraw. They try to keep God at arm's length. We hide. It's kind of like when you were a kid, right? We won't do a show of hands today, but how many, when you were a kid, when you did something wrong, you ran and hid? How many, when you have small children, your kids run and hide from you when they do something? How many know the longer you make your parents look for you, the worse it will go for you when the events to follow? Anybody understand that? Like, if I got to look for you six hours, we got punishment coming from on high, all right? It's going to come if I got to look. But if we deal with this thing, and I wonder how many of us, we run and we hide. How many of us today are making life worse, not because of what we did, but because we won't face it? Not because of the things that we've done, but because we won't come to terms with them. We won't go to the God that we need to confess to. I wonder how many of us are making it worse. Because I would submit to you today that we waste more energy hiding than we do healing. We waste more energy trying to hide our faults, trying to hide our our hurts, trying to hide our baggage from everybody else. We waste more energy doing that than we do seeking the God who can give us healing. And can I just discourage you even further today? Come on, somebody. Can I just... Your efforts to hide are poor. Can I just throw that one out there today? Your efforts to hide the things that you are going through, your efforts to hide those things from everybody around you, from doing those things. I just just let you, they are poor because everybody sees it. That man that day tried to slip in, but the Pharisees were watching him knowing what he was struggling with. Jesus saw him knowing what he was struggling with. Everybody was trying to see how it was going to go for that guy. Everybody was trying to figure that out. And I would just tell you, we waste more energy trying to hide those things because everybody sees them anyway. Everybody sees those things in it. We all see your, your need for validation. We all see your insecurities. We all see the wounds. And let me tell you, it's all right. We see it because we all have it too. The reason it's easy for us to see is we all struggle with those things as well. And if we as a church would just be willing to get the mask off for just a little bit, just a few minutes, instead of always trying to put that facade forward of everything is great. Everything is fine. Everything is working out great in my life. I don't need to be open or honest or vulnerable at all. If we could get that mask off, I promise you the healing that God would pour out. That we would be able to show that we we'd be able to show that realness to each other. That's what happens in this story. Jesus comes to this man, he calls him out, and he's wondering, everybody's watching, seeing how it's going to play out for this guy. But the reality is everybody sees it. Everybody sees no matter how much we try to hide. I was thinking about this over the weekend. It's like playing hide and seek when you're a four-year-old, right? And we see you behind that bush, Hava. We see you hiding behind the bush, right? And you're giggling. Like we just know you're not hiding anything. That doesn't count. But so oftentimes we think we've got everything hidden and everybody sees it anyways. Our efforts to hide are futile because Paul teaches this. Too oftentimes, instead of running and trying to hide where we hurt, we need to embrace those weaknesses. Because Paul teaches this in this verse, he kept praying God would change him, kept praying God would take away that weakness. But he said to me, God told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Some of you need to internalize this verse, because too often times we read this verse, but we practice something different. We say, well, that's great that God said that, but I think he needs me to be incredibly strong and gifted for his power to be made apparent. 
I think that God really needs me to be incredibly, uh, you know, incredibly proud and incredibly famous in this area in order for his work to happen. He says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Watch this. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The greatest moments of my life are when I am weak because that is when God's power can shine the brightest. That's when God's power can work through me the most. I want you to hear today that when God touches those areas of weakness, when he works through those, those areas the devil's trying to steal from you, when it's a devil attacks and you think, well, there's no way that could ever be healed. There's no way that could ever. God will work in the midst of that weakness to bring his glory to light. In the thing that we thought is my greatest weakness, in the thing that we thought, well, nobody will accept me because I'm like this. God will work through that to portray his glory and his light. And it may not be what we think it should be. It may not look the way we think it should look. It may not be, well, I think in order for this to be a complete healing, it has to look like this. God is going to work out his kingdom. And he's going to use us no matter where it is we find ourselves, no matter what it is that we are, no matter what it is that we've done, he can work for his glory. And Paul said, when I am at my weakest is when his strength shines the brightest. Because can I just tell you, all of us have passed through the valley of the shadow of death. All of us have been through things. All of us have passed through those. And I want you to know the reason you went through it is to know that he would carry you through it. Because if you don't know that he's with you, when you stand on the mountain, you'll think you did it all when you didn't. When you come through that thing, when you stand taller, that you'll think it was you. It was him carrying you through the midst of that. Even in your weaknesses is when he shows his strength. And let me tell you that when he brings you through it, it will become the greatest testimony. Devil tried to take your greatest weakness and try to cause it to be a, a place of injury or a place where you felt like I have to hide it or it can't be a witness or a testimony. And let me tell you, when God brings you through it, when his power is shown strength in your weakness, it will become your greatest testimony to the world around you. Because it doesn't matter. Don't, don't tell me about if you climbed that corporate ladder. Don't tell me about if your bank account looks like this. Don't tell me about you got this many kids or this title after your name. Nobody cares about all of that. The testimony is tell me how you kept your marriage together in the midst of it. Tell me how you kept your relationship. Tell me how you came back from that addiction. Tell me how you came over and overcame that childhood trauma. Tell me about those things. Don't tell me about the victory. Tell me about the journey because that's where the inspiration is. Tell me how God carried you through all of that. That's where the testimony comes to the people around you. God will use that weakness. And when his strength is shown in the midst of that, that is the greatest testimony to the world around you. That's what God can do in the midst of our weaknesses. So Paul said, I'll boast in the midst. He said, I'll boast in insult. I'll boast in persecution. I'll boast in weakness because it makes him greater. Because of how much he used, how he healed, how he touched, what he did in the midst of that, that I can then reach out to others who are hurting and tell them about the God who touched my life becomes a testimony in our lives. It's him carrying you. So here's what Jesus does. Verse 8, Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows what the Pharisees are thinking. He knows that they're watching this guy. And he says to the man with the shriveled hand, he says, get up and stand in front of everyone. And so he stood up and he stood there. I'm calling you today. He says, I'm calling you from a place of, of obscurity to a place of prominence. I'm calling you from the back of the crowd. Now I want you to stand in front of everybody. Number three, Jesus, when we're hiding, Jesus calls to us. He calls to us. You want to be on this path of complete restoration. You recognize the attack. You recognize that you have this tendency to run away and hide. You have to suppress that. But then the third thing is you have to hear him calling. That he's calling some of you today. Out of that hurt, out of that weakness, he's calling you out of that thing that happened. He wants to heal you. It's what he did in the garden. It says for Adam and Eve, he walked through the garden calling them. 
calling them, calling them back to him. And so oftentimes when you're hiding from people, you're hiding maybe even from God, you're thinking religion has convinced you that there's no way he could love you. That there's no way what you went through or what was done to you, there's no way that God could still love you. And I want you to know today Jesus calls you. He's calling you. And too often times there are entire churches devoted to telling people whether Jesus doesn't call you, he calls others or he calls this. I want you to know he's calling you. That he wants you. And I don't care what anybody else tells you, Jesus wants you. He wants you. And he's calling today. And I want you to remind you, you say, well, I did these things or I'm I'm broken in this area. Or I'm just not good enough for God to call me. He couldn't want me. I want to remind you what Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says. says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That very thing that you did, that sin or that struggle or that issue that you have, that you think disqualifies you from the love of God, is the reason he came to rescue you. That thing that you think disqualifies you from God is the reason Jesus came to rescue you. He said those who are not sick do not need the physician. He came to seek and to save the lost, to heal the hurting. That thing that you think keeps you from God that made you run in the first place, it's the reason he came. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to rescue you. He loves you and he wants you and he sees you today. He's searching for you. He's calling you. And just like this guy in the story, Jesus looks through the crowd and he sees him and he calls him. He says, step out, take a step of faith, step out in the midst of this, step out in the midst of a crowded room, step out in front of everyone. Can you imagine the emotions that guy is feeling that day? He's kind of slipped in in the back. He's like, this isn't what I'm here for, right? I'm just, I'm just here, Jesus. I come on a Sunday. I'm here to get my synagogue on. I'm going to go home and pout about my lot in life. That's, I'm, just, I'm not here. But Jesus calls him out. He says, take a step of faith. Stand out here in front of everybody. And he looks at him and he says this. He says, I want you to stretch out your hand. I want you to take this one area of life that you are most ashamed of, this one area of life that you think is a weakness. I want you to take this one area that you think is a trauma or an injury that you'll never come back from. I want you to take that one area you feel most vulnerable and take a step of faith and stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. In the midst of the crowd, stretch it out. Now, for those of you having a mild panic attack this morning, we're not going to do that right now, all right? That's not... But I want you, want you to know, I want you, want you to see from this story is there are moments God has for each one of us, moments where he will call us to take a step of faith. This is the moment for this guy. This is the moment that Jesus is asking him to take that step of faith, to call him in front. What is the moment for you? And I want us to be on the, if we're on the lookout to see when the enemy attacks, if we're on the lookout to see when we might withdraw, to see that we don't do that, if we're on the lookout to hear when Jesus is calling us, we need to be on the lookout. What is that moment for us? Because I don't want you to miss it. God orchestrates these moments. He'll bring these, these moments to us that it's a chance for us to take a step of faith in whatever area it was that we were hurt in, whatever area it was that maybe we felt like disqualified. He wants us to take that step of faith. He calls to us. He asks us to step out. I want you not to miss that moment when that person says, hey, what can I pray with you for? Hey, what, what are you struggling with? So oftentimes we miss the moment and we say, well, I'm fine. I'm, I'm good, brother. I'm, I'm, everything's okay. We can't miss those moments. God orchestrates those that we would have a place for healing, that there would be a chance that God could touch our life. When your small group leader says, who wants to share what you're struggling with? Because we want to come together in unity. And we want to just pray around you. They're not just filling time. That is a chance, a moment God has orchestrated for healing. That we're able to share those things and to stand together. We're able to share those. We're able to build each other up, to pray for one another. 
to have those moments. In verse 10, he steps out in faith. Ask him, would you take a step of faith? He steps out. He steps out. He obeys. He says he stretched out his hand. He did so. And his hand was completely restored. It's the final step as we close today. And that is that Jesus restores. That he restores. Completely restores. That whatever it is, whatever issue or injury, whatever it is, that's what he does. He heals and he restores. And he loves you today that he came to heal and to seek and to save the lost. That he's not mad at you for being broken. He's not upset with you about your issues. He's not frustrated that you got yourself stuck. He came to rescue you. He loves you. He cares about you. He has compassion on you. He wants to set you free. Every head bowed, every eye closed today. As we pray. I want you to know that you being here today, you watching online, you being in this moment is not an accident. That there's a reason that God has orchestrated moments in your life that you would have a chance to take a step of faith. That some of you, you came here today or maybe you tuned in, you were just passing through and you clicked on this video right now. That some of you are having this moment where you find yourself far from God. And maybe it was because of something that happened to you. Maybe you had an experience in your life. Maybe something that you did and you ran from him. Or maybe you love the Lord with all of your heart, but you've just found yourself drifting. It happens to us all. But I want you to know today, it's no accident that you are here. It's no accident that you have this moment. I want you to know that he is still drawing and he is still calling you. That he still wants you. No matter what it is you found yourself stuck in, no matter what it is that you did, no matter how far you ran, Jesus still wants you. And that even in the midst of the crowd, he still sees you, he still knows you, and in the spite of it all, he loves you. And so if you say, that's me today, in just a moment, I want to pray that we would begin to see his power move in our weaknesses. We would begin to live out of the overflow. We would begin to share with the world around us what he has put inside of us. We would begin to step out in faith, but it all begins with an act of submission. And so if that's you today, you say, I want to pray that prayer. You say, I want to surrender my life to him. It would be my honor to pray with you. I'm not going to make you stand or come to the front. I'm not in this to embarrass you. There are other times to go public with your faith. Right now is a surrender between you and your Savior. It would be my honor to pray with you. If you say, that's me, I want to make that decision. And I can give you the words to say, but you have to say them and you have to mean them in your own heart. And so all the church together right now, let's pray with those who want to make that decision. All of us say these words. Say, Jesus. Forgive me. I repent. I turn from my sin. And I turn to you. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. And I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus name. Father I'm so thankful today for the miracle that you're doing in people's lives. God, that you are still a miracle working God Lord. That you are touching lives Lord in relationships God, in emotional trauma, God, in things that we've carried for years, Lord, that you are setting people free. That in the midst of this moment, God, we thank you. You do see us for who we are. 
God, that you do see us with all of our struggles, all of our pain, Lord, and you still have a good plan for our lives, that you still have love for us, that you still want us, and you still call us out, God. So, Lord, we open our lives to you. We take steps in faith. Lord, we ask for protection. When the enemy comes in like a flood, we ask you to raise up a standard against him. We thank you, God, for what you're doing. We thank you for the miracle you're working out. We thank you as we begin to live out of the overflow. That you came that we would have life to the abundance. We thank you, Lord. God, let us live out of that this week, Father. Show us how we can live in your light, God. That in our weaknesses, you are strong. Lord, in our struggles, you show yourself great. Lord, that you would touch our lives. Father, we thank you for all that you're going to do.